Uh, good morning, everybody. This is Paul Roebuck, uh, Internacional Texas Education Director. And with me this morning, I have Ben Garrison, does the Internacional Insurance. And we have the attorney, Joe, and I can't pronounce his last name. Deniler. Deniler. Uh, that will be joining us here as soon as we get through some technical difficulties we've got. And uh, we'll have Joe on the line with us, too. So I will let uh, Ben go ahead and start this thing. But I want to say thank you for those of you that have joined us thus far. Uh, attendance is at a, a pretty low number right now, but I'm sure it's going to kick in here since we're just set to 9 o'clock hour. So, Ben, I'll turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself and uh, go into what's going on today. Thanks, Paul. Um, and wanted to say thank you to you and Brenda both. This came on the heels of what was a wonderful conference down in, uh, in College Station that Joe and I had attended for the first time and, and really truly enjoyed um, interacting with, uh, with all of the inspectors there. And as I had said a number of times to, um, to the people that I had met or for the first time, it was nice to be back out on the road and doing these things again. With the pandemic since 2020, we had done very little, actually none of this, and it really gives us a chance to humanize what we do. And having been able to meet you and Brenda for the first time, which has been just merely telephonic and electronic communication, like so much of, of the world these days, it was really a nice opportunity to put a name uh, with a face and a voice and an email account. So thank you for uh, for hosting a wonderful conference, and thank you for hosting us again today. Well, thank because you. Yeah, we found it really beneficial to have a chance to speak with um, with the inspectors that we did and then have the session that we did. And I think it was enlightening for a lot of inspectors to learn about risk, to have Joe's legal expertise there, um, uh, to be able to have a lawyer who's the best home inspection defense attorney in the country uh, up there on stage, so to speak. And then here today, too, to discuss any legal issues, any question you ever wanted to ask a lawyer, ask an insurance company that you were afraid to, whether it's how claims are handled, what happens to insurance, the best type of insurance, how to cover your um, uh, yourself retroactively, how to cover past inspections if you retire, all these things that, that are critical points um, as it relates to managing your risk that oftentimes are overlooked. And sometimes when, you're, when you overlook these things and you find that out, you find that out the hard way. So this is what would I hope would be a good opportunity to um, to harness our experience and, and and use us as a resource as we try and position ourselves in this industry to uh, to best serve the home inspection profession. Uh, yeah, I think, that, I think that's great, Ben. And you know, we're still waiting to get Joel in line with us, but I think I think it's being uh, excuse me. I think that's an awesome. Uh, communication that you're doing with the inspectors and the insurance program. And it's exciting. What you guys did up at the convention in Texas here was just unbelievable. Some of the benefits that you guys do in representation for the inspectors. And that's what we need. Someone that knows what the home inspectors go through that can actually be a benefit whenever an issue comes up that we need to have solved. Yeah, and that's, and that's exactly what we try and uh, be, is, is a great resource um, for the inspection community. I've been insuring inspectors for 17 years now, and this is all that I've done for the past 17 years. And I've never, um, I've, always, I've always just looked at myself or wanted to present myself as a resource for people. And of course, we have an incredible insurance program that we formed, uh, our own insurance carrier, which is very unique in what we do and how we did it. And we did it because we saw a need in the market and we saw uh, too many inspectors getting burned by carriers that didn't know how to manage risk because these carriers 
are far removed from the business, far removed from what you do on a day-to-day basis as a home inspector. And consequently, um, you're, it's, you're a profit loss mechanism to them, right? It's how do we get rid of claims? How do we deny claims? How do we, how do, we do things in the most expedient way possible without taking into consideration what's best for the home inspector? And that's, and that's the, the gap that we saw that we filled with our insurance program. Exactly. That's a, I think that's a great deal. I know you guys were talking and I'll <clears throat> kind of lead you into a little bit of area here, Ben, if you don't mind. Sure. Sure. Uh, one of the things that, that you guys do is that you have attorneys that are familiar with uh, home inspectors and able to, to represent us in claims that uh, we may not even, we may get out of a claim or it may not be as severe as what it could have been. But I didn't notice that you guys talked some about the tail coverage. And in our industry, a lot of a lot of us, this has been our second or third career. And, uh, you know, we've all got uh, gray hair, white hair, no hair. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tough for us to consider getting out of the business. So can you explain a little bit about what tail coverage is? That always seems to be a question that people ask. Yeah. Um, in fact, I deal with that question on a routine basis because um, with the number of inspectors that I insure, there's it, it's across all age groups. A lot of it's new inspectors, but a lot of it's a lot of them are inspectors on the uh, the back nine, so to speak, and, and getting ready for retirement. And one thing that inspectors need to realize is that all home inspection E and O policies are written on a claims made basis, right? So what that means and is that a policy must be in force at the time a claim is made. So let's put it let's 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 make that a practical application, right? Let's say, Paul, you called me, your policy's up for renewal, hypothetically here, and you and Brenda called me and said, you know what, Ben, I'm, we're going to retire this year. We're going to shut down the business. So what that leaves you with is all the, uh, the inspections you've ever done for however long you've been insured. So let's say that goes back 20 years. So if you don't renew your policy, you have the option to take out what's called a tail policy or extended reporting period coverage. So that policy would cover you moving forward you could buy it in a one year two year three year uh, time frame cover you for one year two year three years moving forward for all the inspections you've ever done so you need to cover all of your past inspections for all the work you had for your trailing liability because let's face it someone can come back and sue you for an inspection you did two years ago three years ago um, nothing nothing surprises us in this industry anymore so it's important to understand the consequences of when you switch professions, when you retire and get out of the business, to ha- make sure you have coverage to, to, to ensure all of your past work. And oftentimes inspectors are, are blindsided by this, um, not realizing that they have to spend money to insure them for work that they were that they will t- that they say, well, I was insured at the time of the inspection. Doesn't that mean I'm insured eternally? No, it doesn't. That's not, that is, that is how a claims made insurance policy works, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're an accountant, any licensed professional that has trailing liability and has a claims made E&O policy, that is how it works. Um, does that, does that, um, does that adequately describe what, what, what the implications are on your end, do you think?
Paul, you still there? Ben, I'm here. Uh, we're on the phone with Joe, so we're trying to fix that okay. problem. So go ahead. We hope to have him on the line in just a few moments. Okay. So on the on the notion of um, of tail policies, and one of the things that um, the benefits that we had to the InterNACHI insurance program was we've provided a five year free tail policy, and what that and then there's three major criteria to qualify for that. Number one. You would have had to have uh, been insured through us for three consecutive years or longer. You have reached the age of 55 and you retire from the profession. Um, and, and typically that means dissolving the business. If you have a family run business and you're gonna pass the business down to a family member, son, daughter, uh, whoever, cousin, nephew, um, that is a different circumstance and we would talk about your options there. But the five-year free tail policy um, really uh, gives a, a competitive advantage as far as its price point goes from a big picture standpoint. So I think that's one of the, the, um, the, the nice features uh, on, of, um, of that from a financial sense, on top of the fact that it's one of the most competitively priced programs. Um, I think once, once we get Joe on here, as far as, um, talking about claims and pre-claims and how that's, that process works and what he does and his team. I think that's really the cornerstone of our value proposition for, um, for our insurance program. And the, as I was saying earlier, one of the biggest reasons why we had uh, set up the InterNACHI insurance program was um, to better manage the risk of home inspectors. And to do that, we have to dispel this myth that you can't tell your insurance carrier or your agent if you have a claim or an incident or anything and fear that your rates are going to go up. Um, that is not, that's exactly what we don't want to have happen. In other words, we don't want you to feel like you can't call us, you, you can't let us know these things. Uh, we encourage you to do it. We have pre-claims assistance set up so that you are able to uh, contact us and harness our expertise, harness Joe's expertise and his team of attorneys and adjusters so we can put these uh, matters to bed before they become costly litigation. Last thing we want to have happen is a claim handled or an incident handled improperly um, that you think or that maybe you wrote a letter or had an, an, an attorney write a letter on your behalf thinking it went, uh, it went away and nine months later you get served with an actual lawsuit then we have a, a whole mess of problems, uh, not only from, from a cost standpoint potentially, but also a coverage standpoint if it was never reported within the policy period. So I guess the moral of the story is, we set this up so that you can report all matters and what we call worry-free reporting, um, so that you can uh, let us know and let Joe and his team handle all of these things for you, rather than having to do it on your own. Not only the stress of having to deal with it on your own, but your job is to be out there making money doing inspections so that you don't have to worry about this kind of thing. And that's why we include the service uh, to better protect you. Hey, Ben, one question popped up. So sometimes sure. your policy has a five-year tail coverage. So why buy an extra tail coverage policy if you retire? I'm not aware of any policy that has a five-year tail coverage built into it. Back in the day, those were, it was called an occurrence-based policy. There was one provider, um, when I first got started in this industry back in 2006, uh, there was one outfit that was offering occurrence. 
Um, but I'm not aware of anyone that has an included tail policy with the exception of what we've done. Um, and, and with, with the criteria being met as, uh, as I mentioned before. Right. Okay. Hey, welcome, Joe. I'm glad we got the technical tech technical issues worked out. So welcome. And, uh, those of you that are in attendance, this is Joe Daneller. I may have messed that up, <laughs> but, uh, we're glad we're glad you're here with us, Joe. Thank Great, you. Great, thank you. Thanks, Paul, for having me and Brenda behind the scenes. Thanks for getting getting me back on here. And Ben, um, you know, just to follow up something Ben and you and Ben were just talking about with the the worry free reporting. So everybody knows what what I did for 20 years before I became the general counsel for the elite companies and our captive insurance company is um, I was a home inspection litigation attorney. Um, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And New Jersey is uh, probably the highest uh, rate of claims for home inspectors state in the country. Um, and it's definitely proving itself to be true in our program as well. But um, so I, I did this for a long time. And the worst calls I would have to take were from a home inspector calling to see if he could hire me and pay me out of pocket because he didn't have insurance because he didn't tell his insurance carrier about an issue when it came in. And, you know, that's the critical nature of these claims made and first reported policies is that you have to have notice within the policy year and you need to tell the carrier, us in, in our situation, you need to tell us about it right then. And a lot of inspectors, you know, it, it's it's a learned experience now that, that they're adverse to their insurance carrier and they're afraid if they send them something that that's going to result in a claim on their policy, their premiums are going to go up or you know, they might be in a state where they have to carry insurance and uh, they're going to find themselves unable to have it. And and when I tell you the thousands of dollars that, that people have had to pay out of pocket, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to represent themselves and defend themselves when they could have easily had their insurance coverage kick in if they had just sent an email. <laughs> and, and so we wanted to take away the stigma and and make sure that everybody understood. You can tell us everything. It's never a claim in our program unless I have to write a check. And what that means is that, you know, if, if we have something and expect, we have a matter for you and expenses go above your deductible, then that's going to be a claim on your policy. Now, even if it's a claim, um, we look at things a little bit differently at our program because having seen these claims over and over for many, many years, we can kind of tell which ones indicate somebody might be a bad risk and which ones don't. And, and we've, over the last three years, I mean, I've written people who had uh, a wrongful death claim against them. Um, they had lawsuits that were so um, expensive that they couldn't get coverage. And I'll write those people because when I look at the claim, I might look at it and say, well, you know what? This inspector really didn't screw up here. What happened is they got caught up in this lawsuit and the court systems don't really give us a lot of opportunities to get you out of that at the beginning. And then what happens is we spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on your defense and that money adds up. And when an insurance carrier looks at a claim, you know, they're not looking at, did you win? We do, but most of them don't. They're looking at these numbers, the defense and the indemnity that were paid out. And so whatever we can do to limit that amount, we try to do, but we want everybody to report everything to us um, because we may be able to get rid of it for you very quickly and, and efficiently and be done with it. Um, we may be able to steer you in the right direction in terms of whether it's a claim at all, uh, but we want to help you. And, and it doesn't matter to us 
if it's something that that turns into a claim or not, we're still here to provide that assistance because we know how expensive these things get. And we want to prevent that from happening. If we can do that at the beginning, it's much better for you and for everybody else. So we want you to report everything to us. We'll help you with everything. And we promise you it's not a claim unless we have to spend money. And then the other thing you need to keep in mind with our program is we can't settle a claim without your consent. So, you know, you're, you're the, the inspector in our program is a critical part of the risk management profile and, and what needs to be done. So Joe, how long does, how long does someone have to file a claim against the inspector after they buy a house? Well, it, it depends on the state. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head what Texas is, but I can look before we get off of the, the seminar. Um, but the problem you have is, is some courts use what we call the discovery rule in the law, and that means that they're not going to start that clock running um, until the, the client you know, knew or should have known that there was an error in the inspection process. And so how that works out sometimes up here in our neck of the woods, I'm in southeastern PA, we have a lot of stucco houses and a lot of stucco cases because nobody in this state ever put stucco on correctly. Um, I'm convinced of that. <laughs> and um, sometimes those defects take a long time to manifest. And, and so I've had claims where, you know, 10 years after the inspection, somebody's filing a lawsuit because they went to sell the house and the buyer did an invasive stucco test and came back with moisture. So it, it kind of depends on when they first discover it. Now, what we try to do is in the inspection agreement itself, uh, limit that time period to one year. Part of what we do in our program is, is we give our insureds inspection contracts and ancillary service contracts for anything they want to do. And we also just, um, you know, Nick and I just completed the, the overhaul of the InterNACHI agreements uh, that are available online for free to every InterNACHI member. Um, but what we try to do is cap it at one year. A lot of states will let us um, put a provision in the agreement that we can limit the time period within which somebody can initiate a legal action against you. And the trick is how it's written. It needs to be something that the, the, the person signing the agreement, their attention's called to it, some bold lettering, something to make it stand out so they understand that that time period may be shorter uh, than what the law of that state allows. And we've had a lot of success with that. Um, we generally, the argument to the courts is that so much can happen to a home, you know, uh, over the course of time that it's almost unfair to try to make an inspector defend themselves on a claim if a year has passed in the life of that home, because people are in and out of it. Everything's being used. There's weather. There's all these other factors that can really change what that home might look like. And that home is an evidence scene. You know, that's a piece of evidence for us in these claims. And so if the evidence gets degraded over time, it makes it harder for us to defend the case. Similarly, if somebody makes repairs uh, before we've had a chance to investigate that, that hinders our ability as the defense team to, to determine what that case is worth and, and what should be done next. That's why when we talk to our insureds about uh, claim response and, and risk management, we teach that you should, if you get a complaint from a client, you should get out there immediately. And the reason is, is because that evidence is eventually going to be changed. And I need that evidence to be able to what the conditions were when you were at the site. And so photographs at the inspection definitely helped me with that process. But if a client complains to you, it's important that you get back out there and preserve that evidence because it might be if, if you don't have a clause in your agreement or something, it might be a couple of years. 
before that case comes to court. And, and by that time, the repairs are probably done. And if you don't act when you're given the opportunity to act by going to look at it, the court's not going to hear your argument later that they destroyed the evidence. Um, and so that's why that kind of stuff's critical. And again, it goes back into that worry-free reporting is there's all these decisions. You know, I have this, <laughs> they call them decision trees. I have a decision forest sometimes in terms of how these things are done, depending on the multiple factors that could be in play. But if I have a condition that, that needs to be repaired immediately, that changes a lot of things in terms of how I deal with that claim, because I may want to get out there right away. I might need an engineer out there right away. I might need a contractor out there right away. Whatever the case may be, I may need to get out there, preserve that evidence, and make sure I know exactly what was going on there so I can argue later about whether their repair methods were, were correct or reasonable. And so there's a lot that goes into that, you know, get to us immediately concept other than just the fact that it's it saves you from having a claim on your policy right now let me let me ask you this i don't know if you'll be any of the ones can answer for me but just to give you a little bit of a breath taken there uh what types of claims are y'all seeing this year um well actually i look 2021 was the year of the roof leak for us and and not so much in texas um in texas i really didn't have we didn't have a lot of claims in Texas this year. The ones we had were pretty straightforward and, and vanilla. Um, most of them related to the structure. Uh, some issue related to, you know, I had several houses where there were um, telltale signs of a failure of the structure in terms of the doors were difficult to close, windows difficult to open and close, um, diagonal cracking out of door doorways um, and some sloped floors. And, and those kinds of things, you know, the structure claims might not really present themselves dramatically when you get there. Um, but when you add up all these little signs and you start to see say, well, maybe there's a, a system problem here in terms of the structure. So that was the majority of claims in Texas. But everywhere else, it's been leaky roofs. Huh. Uh, definitely, definitely our big ticket item this year by far. And then I will say, unfortunately, we did have uh, I paid a lot of claims on the general liability side for inspectors who damaged the property or left the water running. I, I had, we had a lot of that this year. And, you know, I, I don't know, you can't pinpoint a cause in, in, in that kind of thing. It's, it's an accident. Um, what the reason we had so many, I liken it to is because we have thousands and thousands of insureds and, you know, you're going to have a bunch of claims like that when you have thousands and thousands of people that you're insuring, you know, at any one day. So, but that, that that was a big ticket item, and and it's that's also not a fun call for the inspector to have to make. Um, that hey, I, I flooded a house, and I'm going to have a claim here because I left water running. Um, but you know, for lack of a better cliche, that that's exactly why you buy insurance. So you know, it, we're there to help, and and I'm going to tell you, you know, we don't drop people for that kind of thing either. Um, you know, those people will buy insurance from us next year. We will definitely give them a policy. Those things tend not to happen more than once in a career. That's good. Good points. Uh, we're talking about helping the inspectors. You guys see, see the claims made and the, the reports that, that go with those claims. Do y'all have any type of a, uh, a literature where you give kind of report comments, things to do, say, not yeah. to say, not to do, that you could share with the, with the group? Well, I, so 
You mean a particular pointer in that regard? I, I do have a couple of things for that. What we do is, um, you know, I've been looking at these for so long that, that a lot of times I can look at an inspection report and pinpoint areas where a jury or an arbitrator or a judge is going to have a problem um, or maybe where things could have been more clear based on my experience. And understand, my experience is always the worst experience. There's nobody calling me and saying, hey, had a great day inspecting, Joe. Thanks. You know, my clients love me and, and everything went well. I, those calls don't come my way. The calls that come my way are, hey, I got a problem or, hey, is this a problem? And so a lot of times what I'll do is I'll take the report and go through it. And I'm trying to analyze where the holes are because I got to see what that claim is going to look like, you know, in a year or two years from now. And I, I have to budget for that. I have to set reserves for that. So I look at that pretty carefully. And if there's anything in the report where I can say, hey, you know, I've seen this play out in another case. Here's what happened. You might want to fix it and make it this. And the, the thing that that there's two things that, that pop out a lot with report writing in terms of claims that we see. Um, one is how we report things that we might not be there to inspect. Um, now we have a lot of asbestos where I am. Um, and so you, you might find an older house will have all the duct work or the, the piping for the boiler system will all be wrapped in asbestos. Uh, vermiculite insulation, we have a lot of that here. And so I'll see inspectors Mold is, is another one. They'll come across something. Mold's an easy one to use in the example. It's a stain on the wall. Looks like mold to anybody who might see it, but we're not responsible for inspecting for mold. Now, I don't know any inspector that walks right past that and says, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I don't expect for mold. So, you know, and just forget it. They're, they're going to tell the client, I see something here that's abnormal. Um, and, and some people are trained to say it's some unknown biological problem that you might need to be in looking at or testing. And some people just say it might be mold, but the trick is how you report it. And, and you want to make clear to the client that just because you saw it here doesn't mean you're looking for it everywhere else. And because we get a lot of cases where our inspector will point out, you know, a stain and say, Hey, that, you know, that might be mold. You might have it tested. And then they get a lawsuit a year later that you didn't tell me about the mold in the attic. And they want to make this argument that, well, you know, once you told us about the mold, you know, we just assumed you were looking for it everywhere, even though, even though, you know, I signed a three page contract that specifically said that you're not looking for that. And even though your report says that right in the very beginning, um, there's money involved. So now I'm going to say, I thought you were doing something differently and, and understand most people are good people, but, but when you're talking about money, and, and they've, they've been scared to death by a contractor or, or somebody else to, or a lawyer to tell them, you've got mold, you know, this could kill your whole family. Um, this needs to be done right away, or you need this repair done right away. They're, they're going to say things or do things that might not be entirely truthful. And, and the mind has a way of allowing people to say things maybe a year or two later that weren't true. And, and they know it wasn't true. Um, but so what I tell people to do in the report is to say, <clears throat> like I said, just because, uh, keep in mind that even though I'm reporting this particular condition in this area, I did not inspect the rest of the home or any of the other systems and components for this condition. If you're concerned about this condition, you should have it tested or have it evaluated, um, and, and have the whole house evaluated for that condition. And if you do it that way, it, it, it's, 
pretty much impossible for somebody to, to argue credibly that, uh, wow, you know, I really, I, I didn't understand that they weren't looking for it in the entire house. Um, the hazmats really give us a good example, like a lot of good examples of, of how to report things and how not to report things. Um, the other thing that comes up a lot, and, I, you know, I get a lot of structure claims where the inspector says, I inspected the foundation walls, there's cracks, but they look normal. Um, and then a year later, those cracks are opening further and further. I see that a lot with flipped homes where, where they're changing, dramatically changing the structure, um, which of course will affect the foundation. Um, but nobody makes any changes to the foundation other than painting it to hide all the cracks. So it, I see that a lot in, in flip homes where we, we have conditions that the inspector sees now that don't appear to be significantly deficient. But in six months, they're definitely going to be again because that house was so dramatically changed. And th those are tough cases because, you know, as the inspector, we're going to say, well, look, I mean, we we call it out for what it was when we were there. We can't predict future conditions. Uh, but but we do see a lot of flipped homes that the problems manifest themselves over time. And now they want to come back and sue the inspector. So let, let me ask you this, Joe, just to get your opinion on it. <clears throat> say we're doing a home that is occupied has a lot of furniture and storage items in the house how would you best describe an inspector to write that in his report or her report that uh, we couldn't see behind those areas we couldn't operate the plugs behind those couches or bookcases we couldn't open the windows in those areas we couldn't see if there could be possible damages hidden how, how would you prefer to see that worded on the report well you hit on a, a several key things there, Paul, in terms of how, how that should be reported. And, and the primary thing is we have an overarching out obligation to tell our client that, you know, if there's any system or component in the home that would normally be inspected using our, our protocols, and we can't, that we have to inform the client of that, you know, and that we couldn't do it. And, and I would add a couple other things. One thing I would add to that is that, you know, if you want this, you should have all this all these areas or all these systems and components that are hidden or, or blocked inspected prior to closing. And um, the other thing I would say is uh, take a lot of photographs of how that room is staged. And you really, you should be taking pictures of every room in the house um, just so you can get a lay of the land because you're not gonna remember a couple of years from now um, what clutter was there, not there. But the, the other key thing you hit on there, Paul, is telling them what things they might not be able to see or inspect. And it's important to frame it for them, not just that the room is cluttered and inhibited by inspection, but here are the systems and components in this room that I was unable to inspect as a result. And so you mentioned the, the outlets, um, you know, or, or it might be a window. Um, it might be uh, a closet door that's blocked for some reason, which would obviously be a huge red flag, but furniture and, and belongings are going to play a large role in, in what you're able to see and not see. So I, I would tell a client that, you know, let's use the basement or well, the basement's not good. Let's use a garage, right? Um, the garage um, is, is the, the home is occupied and the garage is filled with uh, many personal items of the sellers, uh, some of which are blocking or, or, um, inhibiting my ability to inspect. And then now we get the variable, right? Is it the walls that are blocked? Is it the floors that are blocked? Uh, is there ductwork you can't see? Is there an attic hatch, you know, in that attached garage that you can't get to? 
and you want to tell them all those things. And I would tell you, in addition to telling them what you can inspect, tell them what that might, how that might work out. So I cannot get to the attic hatch that I can see at the top of the garage due to personal belongings blocking my ability to get there. Um, as a result, I will not be able to inspect that area of the attic. Uh, now you might want to mention the systems and components that, that should be up there. You got insulation and ventilation, right? You're going to have uh, the overall condition of the attic. You might have HVAC equipment there. There might be an air handler there. There, there could be any number of systems and components that now you can't inspect. So it's not enough just to say, I couldn't get into that section of the attic. You need to tell them what things you might not be able to deal with or see as a result of not being able to get up in the attic. Um, but it's important that we're very clear about those things, because I can tell you, we get a lot of claims where people come in and they have their report and they say, well, I know the inspector told me he couldn't get in the attic, but he didn't tell me that as a result of that, he wouldn't be able to see the knob and tube electrical wire. And, you know, it, it seems a little facetious that that, you know, that argument in general, but I got to tell you, you know, the courts will allow people to make ridiculous arguments to keep a case in court. And as long as the case is in litigation status or in court, it's costing money. And that money eventually adds up and causes you a problem in terms of your, your ability to buy insurance at a reasonable price. And, and so anything we can do to eliminate even the most frivolous of arguments and, and allegations, we try to do because, again, those things will cost you if 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 at least anything, your time and your and some of your money to get rid of. Uh, that makes good sense. I know it seems that as inspectors, we're not only obligated to report what we're re or actually inspecting, but we're also obligated to report the items that we can't inspect. And those attic spaces are one of them. I mean, you know, my reports, I put that I visually see the attic from the safe, accessible walkway. There may be sections of the attic that are not visible, not readily accessible. Uh, you know, and some, some newer inspectors, a lot of times, Joe, I'll hear them say, well, we walk across the ceiling joist, missing the, trying to miss stepping through the ceiling with the insulation covering the joist. And I ask them, why? Why are you taking that risk? Because you're taking more of an obligation than what you need because you, if you step through that, guess who gets fined on it? Guess who gets to pay that? Guess who gets injured and may not have another yeah. inspection for a while? <clears throat> so, you know, I try to teach when I'm teaching these classes uh, on, on inspecting to be careful. I mean, you walk into a house, it's vacant. Everything's freshly painted, new carpets. Guess what? I was going to go in my report a comment saying that the house has fresh paint and flooring. Yeah. And I, I cannot tell you, but there may be hidden damages that are not visible during this inspection. Something along that line. Just, you know, it, it's a shame, but it, it seemed like a home inspector, we have to become more of a, on the defense of writing our reports than ever before because of all the consumer. I mean, it, the news media, the internet, everything else has gotten so big and Inspector Joe on TV, uh, you know, eight yeah. tear walls where we can't. And so, you know, we're, we're limited, but we have to explain that, put the perspective for the consumer in the right area so that they understand what an inspection is and what it isn't. So good points, Joe. Yeah, yeah no, that, that stuff's critical, Paul. And, and it, you know, I, I try to, what I try to tell people is you, you have to tell your client that you just can't touch or, or, or break or damage anything that, that they don't own yet. You know, it, it's, it's really that simple. And, I, I, to your point about safety, 
you know, that's the one area, no matter what, wherever, where you are in the country or, or what standards of practice you're using, whether something's safe or not for the inspector is ultimately only up to the inspector. Exactly. It really is. And, and you shouldn't assume that people are, well, you know, I don't like the idea of walking, walking around this attic without a platform, but, you know, the client expects me to, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. I, we had a few of those this year with people just stepping through ceilings or falling through ceilings. I had two inspectors have personal injuries as a result that took them out of work for a while. And, you know, most of our insureds are, are mom and pops. You know, it's, it's one inspector. And that, that's the end of the game right there, you know, for several weeks and, and during peak season, no less. So it, it's a real concern. And I, I say it over and over again. As the inspector, you are the ultimate arbiter of what is safe for you and not safe for you. And I'm going to tell you, you will not lose if you tell the client, I didn't do something because it was unsafe for me. And here's why. Here's what I might not have seen. There's not a jury or a judge out there that's going to argue with you about your decision on what's safe and what's not for you to do. The key is to make sure your client understands that you didn't do it and the reasons why. Um, we see it typically with roofs, you know, where I am, we get snow and got six inches on the ground now and counting actually this morning. And, um, you know, a lot of inspections are done in early spring when we still have snow. And so, you know, a lot of inspectors can't get up on the roof and, and they'll, they'll tell the client, you know, I couldn't get up on the roof and it's unsafe because there's snow or it's a slate roof and whatever the case may be. But you also need to tell the client, here's what I couldn't see. I couldn't see you know, the valleys, I couldn't see the chimney, I couldn't see the flashing, whatever that might be that you're, you can't see from the ground or from the ladder, you need to make that clear as well. Exactly. I think, Joe. Maybe jump in on Maybe you're too quiet over there. Yeah, so I sit on the front lines of a lot of this when, when my clientele call me to talk about a potential claim or issue. Um, and there's generally a pretty standard way that this happens, right? Your buyer, your client as the inspector has an issue, so they might call a contractor, whether that be a plumber or roofer, whoever it is, depending on whatever the circumstance. So that contractor might come over and, and say, well, your home inspector should have seen this or should have seen that. But what they don't realize and kind of what we discussed before right, right now is that they're seeing a different version of the house than what you saw that was potentially most likely owner occupied. So, of course, they, they might see things in a different way. They might see a crawl space that has nothing in it that's it's completely accessible. Uh, they might see a garage that doesn't have uh, any obstructions on the floor where all the seller's contents were that has cracks that, um, that, 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 that are visible at that time. And so I think it's important to have the pictures, as Joe said. Just because you take 100, 200 pictures during an inspection certainly does not mean you need to include all of them in every inspection report. They're good to have as backup in case someone calls into question uh, the condition of a house at the time of an inspection. So just, and again, just, just because you take a, a, a large volume of pictures does not mean you have to use them all. Have them as storage and backup. Exactly, let me, let me ask you guys this. <clears throat> we recently had a uh, inspector in Texas a couple years back now that was inspecting the property, went in the backyard and the people had a couple of rock wallers in the cages and he was doing his inspection and all of a sudden the dogs got out of those kennels 
that came after the guy and attacked him. I don't know if y'all heard the story or not, but uh, he got into the back door, everything except one leg. And those dogs had it on. They were trying to drag him out of the house, but they tore his leg up. I mean, the guys had multiple surgeries on his legs and he just now, I think it's been it maybe almost three years. He just got back to be able to do inspections lightly. But, you know, it's, uh, I don't know what happened. I don't know what the claims or anything, but, you know, I know I sent an email before I go out to the inspection, advise my client and their agent to make sure that there's no young kids in the house without a parent being there. Make sure that there's no pets loose, uh, preferably take them off the property. Make sure I can get into the attic safely. Nothing's blocking it. I can get into the electrical panel board, things like that where I can have access to it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times we don't know about that. And, and I've gone to the state of Texas. I've gone to the uh, TAR, NAR, and uh, asked what can we do about animals being on the premises during the inspection. Uh, and I've, I've told them, I said, if this inspector, let's say the realtor was there with a the client and they had two or three-year-old kids with them and the dog got a whole of their kids then you know, would that have changed the scenario, the story of this instead of an inspector getting chewed up? And you know, I heard from both the association of realtors that they had this, it's a, it's a thing that happens across the country that uh, you know, animals bite realtors or inspectors or pest control guys. Uh, you know, it's, it, what, what do y'all think could be done on that? I mean, I tried to take it on a state and national level, but I got shot down because it could hurt the real estate market by simply asking someone to remove their animals. Yeah, I I don't know. So where I am, you know, you can have civil liability for an animal attacking somebody if you know that person's going to be on the premises and, and you have reason to know that your animal might be, might have a propensity to bite. Um, so inspectors here, if they go out to a particular site and, and an incident like that happens, they have a, they have a lawsuit against the, the seller or the owner of the property and the owner of the dog. But, you know, that lawsuit isn't going to help when you're six months laid up and unable to work because that's going to take years to resolve. So there's no good way about it. Ultimately, you know, it's a safety issue. And just like any other safety issue, you, you as the inspector get to be the ultimate decider of whether that's unsafe for you or not. But I mean, I, I, there's not much else you can do other than, you know, appeal to the agent you're working with and your client to make sure that these things aren't happening. And I would say that, you know, we see it up here. We, we do have dog bites. I've among several million other things that people do. That's crazy here. I've had people, you know, have their guns out on the table, cleaning them with like the kids around while the inspector's supposed to be there. I've had, you know, uh, anything you can think of that they that just gets left laying around people's personal things. And I, I would say to you that in terms of the dog bite issue, I can't imagine a situation where I'd put myself at risk if I knew about it. Um, but but you're, you know, not a lot of inspectors do the, the thing that you just said, which is go through those steps every time to make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, and, you know, we just, I just got an email last night of an inspector in California that was shot and killed at an inspection, yep. <clears throat> which was, you know, I mean, you never know what you're going to run into. I mean, I've been in houses where uh, they were supposed to be vacant and open the front door and I find clothes thrown on the floors and to-go boxes from restaurants all over the kitchen. 
I walk back out and call the realtor and say, hey, you told me it was empty. I'm here, but someone's in your vacant house. And sure enough, it was a homeless person that broke into the house. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there's hazards with the, with the business. And I know that this E&O insurance isn't going to cover us and all that. It's just some safety points for inspectors. Yeah, oh, and that, that homeless but, person might have become your client with squatter's rights, right? Yeah. <laughs> if, you're out, if you're in California with Ben, that, that guy now owns the house. That's what's happened there. Uh, he's, no, squatter, he's a tenant now, or owner, huh? Yeah. <laughs> The world spins a little bit differently on the west side. Um, no, we, won't Joe, go, we won't go there, Joe. Joe, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, a lot of what I hear um, being, again, on the front lines and, and dealing with the textbook claim, when I go through my questions with, with my insureds, um, it's always, yeah, and the, and the, the buyer, the, their client saying, yeah, you called this out, but you didn't make it seem like a big deal. Yeah. And yeah. therefore, we didn't have it further evaluated. So how do you as an inspector be emphatic enough to describe and maybe deflect or defer while not causing too much alarm and scaring the daylights out of people? And I feel like it's a really, it's, it's, a, it's a fine line um, to, to, to write these things and articulate the conditions in a way that's not only risk averse as the inspector, but also providing some in, in, insightful guidance. I think yeah, one thing that, I, that I've done on, on things, Ben, such as a foundation, uh, if I find that there's issues with foundation, I'll recommend a structural engineer if I feel it goes to that extent. But I'll also put in there, you know, if you have concerns, we recommend you contact a structural engineer prior to the end of the, and in Texas, we have an option period. So prior to the end of that option period. Right. I, the one thing, so our friends in Texas, you don't have a problem that a lot of inspectors have in the country, which is the format of your report, because that's in large part been decided, but for the ways they do let you, you know, personalize it a bit. Correct. Um, but we get, you know, to your point about, you know, when people think that it wasn't emphatic enough or they weren't told enough, sometimes that's a function of how the report's laid out. Um, you know, I get a lot of, we get a lot of claims where I, I look at the report format and, you know, I mean, look, I still get, I still get handwritten reports sometimes. Um, and, and yeah, it's, and so when you're in a state where there's no regulations and you can do it, however you want to do it, it you get some strange results, but um, a lot of times it's the form of the report that causes the confusion. And so what a lot of inspectors do where they can manipulate, you know, what's in the body of that report is to make clear that, you know, anything I identify here as a defect or whatever it is you're calling it, major defects, material defect, um, needs to be further evaluated prior to closing. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is a specialist in that field or a specialist related to that system or component may find things in addition to what I found um, because they're an expert in that field. And, and that's critical because there's some occasions where the inspector calls out something, you know, in the electrical system. Um, and it turns out there's something deeper there that's worse than a home inspector might not see, but that, that electrician is going to know when they get in there and take a look. And so I try to tell people to, to write it that way that, you know, you need to do this immediately prior to the end of their inspection period or prior to closing, 
Um, and again, adding that there might be additional problems in that system that an expert might find at least covers the universe of people who are going to try to come back and say, well, that wasn't emphatic enough. Well, I told you everything I put in red needs to be followed up prior to closing. What else was I going to tell you? You know, and then the significance of what the inspector's finding sometimes is lacking in the report writing. And again, that goes to the emphasis. You know, why is this important? Why is the inspector telling you that this needs to be addressed? You know, is it a safety issue? Um, is it uh, that it'll cause further property damage? Whatever the case may be, that stuff needs to be made clear to the client. And the best place to do it is right in the beginning of the report. Correct. And let me, let me interject here just for a moment, guys. We, uh, for those of you that are participating with us today, let me just say we're glad that you're here. Uh, we're, uh, ben and Joe have taken their time to come and answer your questions this morning. Tell you some about your E&E coverage and uh, things with, about inspections. Uh, so if you've got questions, feel free to put it into the Q&A and we'll certainly ask. Or these guys can probably see it on their side of the screen also. And uh, we'll, we'll bring those points up. And we've popped up one question. <laughs> can you guys see that for yourselves? I can. From okay, Jessica? So Jessica has a question about whether <clears throat> if you have an LLC um, in Florida, in this example, um, can a plaintiff, you know, suing you go through your corporation and get to your personal assets. Um, and so we call that in the law, piercing the corporate veil. So the, there's two big reasons why you create a corporation, right? One is personal insulation and the other is taxes. And, and so when you form an LLC or a corporation or a partnership or whatever the case may be, um, par part of why you're doing that is to shield your personal assets from, from liability claims against the business. Now, because most home inspectors are, are single operator businesses um, or family businesses, there are occasions where inspectors might, for example, pay their home utility bills out of the checkbook for the company or pay the tuition for the kids out of the company or, or somehow mingle, co-mingle those funds. And when that happens, then a, a plaintiff who's suing may be able to pierce that corporate veil, pierce that corporate insulation and go after the personal assets of the inspector. Um, now, the, the question here, though, is can they pierce your LLC veil if your home inspector license is registered under your personal name rather than being registered under your company name? I, I don't believe that makes a difference, at least not to my knowledge, unless there's some special nuance in Florida um, and in which case I would defer to a Florida attorney on that opinion. I can tell you my experience. So most places, the license is under the name of the inspector already. And that, that doesn't make them personally liable. And I'm pretty sure Every that's state's different, Florida too, right? With that is Florida, Florida, license, is Florida corporate license individual, right? It's individual. And then um, uh, Texas, for example, the track once assert if it's uh, issued in the, the first and last name of the inspector. So it's different state to state. And the one thing when I'm always asked um, about insurance and, and LLCs, and, uh, and because I'm not a lawyer, nor am I an accountant, my answer is this. If an LLC would uh, protect you and insulate you from, uh, from any liability, taking, leaving aside the insurance requirements in probably 30 states, 
our industry wouldn't exist. You wouldn't need it because you would just set up an LLC and, and rely on a contract to, to insulate yourself if, if they were, if they were foolproof, there, there, there just wouldn't be a need for insurance. So that's uh, that is a common question is, well, do I need it if I have an LLC? And the answer still is, yeah. Um, because if, if that was bulletproof, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't exist. There would be no need for us. That's right. But well, any other questions you guys feel free to chirp in and uh, pop them to us. So we'll certainly answer them as they come up. Uh, gee, what else are we going to talk about, guys? Um, how, how many? Well, let me. So one of the things that we've seen, I think, a trend in 2020 and 2021 amidst this pandemic are, are relocation inspections. And I say that from a standpoint of uh, people moving to Texas, like from, from where I am um, in California, people are moving to Texas, uh, Tennessee, and, uh, and other states, Idaho, Montana. Um, how many inspections are being done uh, without ever meeting the buyer set up by the agent? And that goes into what Joe, you were saying before about writing reports. The, the reality of someone, let's say I'm buying a house and I'm moving um, from California to Texas and I hire an inspector. You give, I hire you, Joe, as my inspector, or you, Paul, and you give me a report saying, well, you need to hire a contractor, electrician to look at this. The reality is someone moving from across the country is not doing that. I'd say 90 to 95% of the people aren't doing that. They want the inspection done. They want to move. You're just another stepping stone in terms of acquiring their dream or their goal of relocation and buying another house. So how do we protect against that, um, if, if, if at all, with, with relocation and buyers that are buying property sight unseen um, and, and, with, with, and, and the ability to de develop rapport really being hindered in today's market. I, we've had some claims this year for buyers who, you know, were never physically at the property. Um, and and uh, I think there were three or I can remember three off the top of my head. And, um, and to give you an idea, we get about 200 claims a year. So it's hard sometimes to, to remember them all, but I know I had at least a couple where the, they were sight unseen and there was at least one where the inspector did, you know, commit an error. Um, but for the most part, the other ones, it, the, the, the issue was really related to, you know, the person not having been there and not having seen it with their own eyes. And so when they read the report, um, they really didn't understand the, the immediate need to have something looked at. And so it does create a problem. And the bigger issue, like you mentioned, Ben, is the logistics of the follow-up. Um, if I was advising people moving, I would say you need to make sure, you know, you hire an agent that is all about taking care of this entire process for you. Um, because the home inspector is going to do the home inspection, but the home inspector is not going to be able to make the arrangements or, or have any responsibility to make the arrangements for all these other things that might need to be looked at as a result of the inspection. Um, and so I, you know, it, it's important that they have a good agent, but, but we, as the inspector can't control what happens after they read that report and you can make all the recommendations, but ultimately the follow-up is on them. And I will tell you that, you know, when an inspector makes a recommendation in a report and then the client comes back and tries to make a claim and, and that recommendation was in there and not followed, that's a relatively easy claim to defend. Um, and again, what did that tell you? No one, yeah. people don't read the report. <laughs> no, they don't. Uh, listen, I, I, I'm going to tell you right now, you know, I, I took the depositions and cross-examined it uh, in court, many, many, many claimants in home inspection cases. And 
one of the first questions I would always ask is, did you read it? And, and, you know, you get the, yeah. Okay. Did you read it cover to cover? Well, no. Well, when did you read it? Did you read it all at once? Did you break it up over time? Like who was with you? Who did you discuss it with? And you come to find out that they read the summary or they handed it to the agent. The agent looked at it and told them what the agent thought was important. Yeah, it just, I don't know. I'm not the, listen, I'm, I'm honestly not the sharpest tool in the shed and certainly not, you know, I, I have people who manage financial stuff at our company other than me, because that's, that's not what I do. I do risk. And, but, but if I'm going to invest a half a million dollars in something that I'm going to pay or a million dollars or 250,000, and I'm going to pay for that over 30 years of my life and pay all that interest, I'm going to be reading that report a few times. <laughs> right. Very you, know, people do, though. you do what you do for a living and what I do for a living. Of course, we're, we're doing that. Right. But yeah. the average consumer just doesn't yeah. like when I got my, when I bought my house, I had it inspected, of course, and I took the recommendations of my inspector because of what I do for a living. Right. And it scares the daylights out of me. And to your point earlier, Joe, like no one calls me to say, Hey, I, everything went great. They call me and they call you when things go sideways. So we're, we're, we're jaded. Right. And we have the advantage of doing what we do and understand the, the reality of, of, of what can go wrong. Um, but consumer 101, I mean, people just want what they want. We check into a hotel, you know, I could give them my, my first born, my firstborn daughter. We, we we're consumers. We just want what we want. We bypass. Let me, let me give you a good example. Paul, have you read your insurance policy with us cover to cover? Absolutely. First and last page. No, of course I didn't. Yeah, I you, 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 you know what your limits are. So I just I just told you exactly the same that the same concept, right? Inspectors aren't going to read their aren't they going to read their insurance policy cover to cover. Your clients are not going to read their inspector report cover to cover. And no, nothing is a problem until it becomes a problem, until you have to rely on the contents of what's in the report, what's in the well, policy for people see, to really understand. See, Ben, you should have gave me a summary page. We did. It's called a declaration. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't read that. You should have called it summary. So yeah. <laughs> where I can read it. See, Joe, I think yeah. there's a lawsuit coming up. See? Oh, there is. I'm going to be happy. Oh, I'm going to represent you in this. was supposed to go. Yeah. Hey, I read it. That's all that matters. That's okay. right, See, I don't have to read that stuff. She takes care of it. I'm just the good. inspector. That's team. Hey, we had another question come up. Good, uh, Paul. Yeah, a couple of questions. So, do y'all recommend a summary report be added to the report or not? Yeah, I do. And because, listen, knowing what I know about the consumer, the average buyer and the consumer, I'm going to say that at the risk of them cheating and only looking at that. It's still better than them not reading anything at all. And <clears throat> again, the hope is that they, uh, you know, my, my hope is not that I'm able to get you out of something. My hope is there's never a something to get you out of. Yeah, and so really. if, a summary, if a summary helps the client understand the, the most serious things and the, and the immediacy uh, of the need to act on your recommendations, that will probably avoid a claim. And so I'm always going to err on the side of having the summary. You know, I've always felt like when I do an inspection, I prefer the clients to be at the inspection so that I can go over my findings at the end of it. And you yeah. build a rapport. They know, well, hey, he was he was up front. At, you know, if I tell them, hey, this is something serious you guys really need to pay close attention to, maybe get further evaluations or whatever, uh, then, you know, and, and I say, call me. If you've got any questions afterwards, let me help you where I can. 
And that always seems to go a long way, having that rapport. So whenever we have out-of-state buyers or out-of-country buyers buying a house based off a video that they saw, and uh, <clears throat> then we do the inspection, and they pick up the phone and call me and say, Paul, did you inspect the wrong house? The realtor said this thing was like a, a mansion. And what you're telling me is more like a teardown. So, you know, it's, it helps whenever they can talk to the inspector and we can actually put it in the right perspective for them rather than taking it realtor advice. I mean, there are some good realtors, but there are some bad realtors out there. And speaking of realtors, someone's asking, can the realtor sign an uh, agreement? Yeah. Oof. So the answer is a, a flat no. I don't care where you are in the country. Um, the realtor can't bind the, the inspection client to that agreement. It's, it's of no use. Um, so what if they have a lawyer representing them? A lawyer can bind a client because we're, we, we're assumed to have what they call in the law apparent authority. As the attorney for a client, we have, are, are assumed, if we say we have it, to have the authority to bind our client to agreement. No different than if I was uh, negotiating, if let's say I'm a defense lawyer for an inspector in a case and I'm negotiating a settlement. As I'm talking to that other lawyer, it's assumed that I have the authority to speak for my client in terms of what they will agree to and not. And the same is works with regard to consumer contracts. Um, so the, the, the lawyer can bind the client to the agreement. And then if, if the client wants to argue about that, you know, whether or not the lawyer was authorized to do that, well, that's a fight between them and the lawyer, not you. But nobody else can do that. Now, you may have occasions where you have <clears throat> an estate is the seller. In that situation, you would want the, uh, I don't know if they, in Texas, they call them executors and executrix um, or, or rep personal representative or estate representative, but that person can bind them. If you're doing it for a, co a company, for an LLC or a partnership, then, you know, the person signing the agreement needs to, to, say that they're authorized to do that you know you're you're not required to play detective you're allowed to rely on what they tell you if they tell you i'm the person at the company authorized to do this you're you're entitled to rely on that mm -hmm. um but it needs to be somebody who can actually bind that person and really other than a lawyer or if you have a situation where um there's a representative who has a um a power of attorney to enter into agreements for somebody, let's say it's somebody who is older and, and, you know, they can't make decisions for themselves on their own, or, or it's a guardian situation where, you know, it's a, a child who, uh, you know, owns this house by virtue of the parents somehow predeceasing them, you know, all those things can play into it. But in the, in the normal course, it's got to be your client that signs that agreement because Number one, the client is the person, you know, receiving the benefit of your services. Although I would argue that everybody in the transaction gets, gets a benefit from the inspector finding problems because then they don't get sued. Um, so I would say that everybody gets a benefit. But in terms of the legal duty, um, you want the person buying that house to be the party bound to that agreement because that's going to be the party that has the interest in, in bringing a claim against you later on, if there's something amiss. Well, one thing that comes up, Joe, a lot of times is that uh, people will back out on buying a property and then that report goes to a next potential buyer. Uh, what 
responsibility do we have at that stage? Well, in, it, it, thankfully, in your state, none to the, the next buyer. Um, you're not <clears throat> your duty is to the person who paid you and signed that agreement. And you can't help what happens to that report after you hand it off to your client. Um, now, in, in the agreements we just redid for Internachi, we have some provisions in there about third parties and uh, and what they're allowed to rely on and not. And, you know, like I said, you can't really control what your client does with the report or, or worse yet, I, I see agents um, using them, you know, like, so a seller's agent gets a hold of the report, the deal falls through and they, they've got the report sitting on the table. I, I just had a claim. <laughs> this one's a doozy. So the <clears throat> my my inspector, my insured inspector represented the buyer and they they produced a report and there were several major issues. Um, so the seller's agent posted the report on the MLS and and then <clears throat> added information to the report to say like this is this was actually reviewed and an expert said no, uh, all this stuff. And it makes it look like the inspector wrote it. Right. And, and so and it's got the inspection company's name and everything right there on the MLS, making it look like my insured is now representing that all these problems were corrected. Um, and so we had the you now that's not it's not a, a, a typical claim. Right. Mostly what we deal with is somebody saying you did something wrong. Right. That or or you broke something. That's really our universe of things. And so this is above and beyond claim response and anything. But I couldn't leave my I couldn't leave the insured hanging on that one. I, I had to respond like to whether or not it's a claim or, or something I'm going to have to pay money on. Like the, it's ridiculous. And so we wrote a cease and desist letter and and for the inspector to use as part of their risk management, because, you know, the, the, the idea is that that thing might get spread around even more and they might end up with a bunch of claims that we have to hire counsel for just to prove that, you know, nobody else was allowed to rely on that report. But that's the lengths that people go to. You know, I, I've had reports where I, I had a, in Pennsylvania, I had a client who has a very unique name. Um, you know, it's their company and only their company. They have a, they created their own report format. that's very unique looking. And they call me one day and they say, Hey, I, we had, we got a call from this lawyer saying that we screwed up this inspection in Delaware and we don't work in Delaware. And he sent me a copy of the report and I look and it's, there's some guy in, it was a realtor in the transaction was using their, their, their form that he got from somebody in Pennsylvania oh. was representing that these houses were getting inspected and they weren't. Wow. And so I'm going to, you know, listen, I, I've, I've seen a lot of that. And, and the key is that, that at least for you guys, unless they sign your agreement, they're not your client. You know, when you're working in a state that has laws and regulations, you'll notice in the track regulations, what they always keep pointing to or keep reiterating is, you know, you need to do this for the client. And the client has a particular definition. You know, in your case, it's the person signing your agreement. And so your legal duties end after that client and, and certainly not to somebody who didn't pay you for your opinions. Um, now, I often get asked the follow-up question is, well, can I go sue my client if they hand the report out to people and I get sued by this third party and have expenses? Um, that's a different situation. I, some courts would say that that report belongs to them. Um, we put a provision in our agreement that you know we don't want third parties relying on it. I recommend 
that inspectors put that right in the body of the report is that, you know, unless you are our client as identified, you know, here, um, you know, you have, you are not authorized to rely on this report. This report was not written for you and you should have your own inspection done. You should not rely on this report. But Joe, what, what if you copyright the report? Does that hold any, any legal standings at all? You can't copyright the content um, because it's not unique. Um, it's, it's available to anybody already. You can, you can copyright formats of things, provided there's some unique quality of it that, that warrants protection. Um, but you can't, really, you can't really copyright the content um, because it's not, you're not creating anything. You know, the photographs depict a, a, an area that anybody can walk by and see or anybody in the home could look at. And, and so I would say to you that it's not, it's probably can't be copywritten, at least as the content. Okay. We had another question here. It says the state of Texas authorized specters operate as an LLC in the past. They now require PLLCs. Should I change my car to structure? And I, I don't, I don't know what, what Texas is doing. I didn't think the state real estate commission had anything to do with that. So oh, uh, just, maybe the state of Texas, I'm not sure. We, we do track certs all the time that we send to the track. So as it relates to the Texas real estate commission, they've never kicked that back. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously it's, it's the, the policy has the, uh, because it's written in the first and last name, but if they see a copy of the declarations, I don't know how they regulate that because the, the license itself is in the name of the actual inspector. So who's regulating the, the, the formation of the company when the track only has the, uh, the, 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 the cert in the first and last name? Right. Now, <clears throat> switching course again here on you guys. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to keep some questions going here to keep, the, keep a little discussion. But uh, up at our convention recently, you guys mentioned something about uh, home inspectors getting... Uh, having filed cases filed against Trek on them from home sellers because they get upset yeah. about the report or whatever. Can you go in and tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we've had it. We've had a spate of those, <clears throat> and not just in Texas, in, in many states, um, where the seller will make a will file a consumer complaint uh, against the inspector, you know, and basically argue that they went above and beyond what they're allowed to do. Um, so, you know, we have the universe where the client is saying um, you should have went above and beyond what the Trek standards say. And then we have the sellers come in and say, well, you went too far above and beyond what the, what the Trek regulations say. And so and they'll, they'll file the complaint and um, and make these allegations. And I guess, you know, the benefit is <clears throat> or the good part about it is, is they Trek can't award damages to that person. Right. And so. But, but the sellers that still try to sully the name and, and get your license pulled because they just don't like all the bad things you found about the house. And right. uh, we, we respond to those. Uh, our policy provides coverage um, for assistance with responses to licensing boards. Cool. Oh, that's a biggie. Yeah, yeah. For you, you guys and gals that are listening that are in Texas, that's a biggie. Uh, yeah. If you need representation at, at Trek for something like it or how to respond to them. I, know, yeah. I, had a, I had a recent seller file a complaint with the state on me, and uh, <clears throat> he said he couldn't sell his house. Everything I wrote in the report was frivolous. He listed some contractors that he had come out and look at the job and uh, go against my, what I had reported, even to the point of saying that they couldn't find anything like that. And uh, the state sent us his response 
One of them was on a foundation. I had some exposed tendon ends on a post-tension slab that has to be written up according to track as a deficiency, which I did, and included a picture in my report of it. Well, this guy calls the, the local post-tension foundation company. He come, the guy comes out and walks around the house as a courtesy and never charged him anything and told him that there was no issues with the foundation. Well, <clears throat> I picked up the phone, called the guy, and asked him, well, did you move into the shrubbery out to look and see what was behind there that you might have seen? He said, oh, no. He said, I just walked around the house. I wasn't going to move anything. I was just doing a courtesy visit. Well, that gave the seller ammunition to say, hey, the inspector's wrong. So, you know, he, and he, he went to track with every item I wrote as deficiency on my report and said the inspector's wrong on all of it. So we got the report, went over a couple of me and esteemed colleagues in Texas, went over and wrote to every one of Trek's responses according to their standards of practice and was getting ready to send it back to them when uh, one of the guys, wise and wisdom, said, don't send them all that stuff. Just send them a simple email that, uh, well, the guy said he couldn't sell this house. That was not true. And what we had was a disgruntled seller. And my clients are actually living in the house and happy. And we sent that back to them and, and Trek finally dismissed it. But, you know, it took 10 months to get that out away from, you know, from my records. And, you know, sometimes the seller's one is the one that follows those complaints a lot of times over stuff that they may have talked to a contractor. You know, that last man in line routine of, you know, last one there has a different story. That that usually happens. But, I mean, that's I'm sharing that just so that the other online with us can realize that just because you get a file claim against you doesn't mean you can't defend yourself or do something on it. But it would be good to have someone such as Joe or Ben in our background to be able to, to represent us on that too. Yeah, we do those. <clears throat> so the policy provides, and if, if it's more than a response, if it's a very, an involved where they're going to have a hearing or something, the, our policy provides coverage. You know, we'll provide local counsel um, to go with you to that hearing and deal with it. And, and so I can tell you that most of these licensing complaints, the problem isn't so much the, the, the actual, the complaint that they file, <clears throat> it's the follow-up and the, and the, you know, that the investigation by the licensing board in the other areas that aren't just involved in this claim, like checking and making sure you've got all your continuing education uh, or checking on your insurance policy or finding something in the, in how you have your report set up that violates the report, you know, format regulation. So there's two things you got to watch out for the complaint that's being made and, you know, is, are all your ducks in a row and is everything about your business tight in terms of, you know, your, your responsibilities under the regs. But um, <clears throat> a lot of these, the ones from the sellers, and uh, we have a question too from Jessica about how do we protect ourselves from the seller? Uh, the client signs a contract, uh, but not the seller. Or when the seller says we break something, you know, or we probed something and caused damage, how often do the sellers sue? I'm going to tell you from a lawsuit standpoint, the sellers don't sue very often at all. We'll get claims, um, but we can usually get rid of those. And, and one of the ways we deal with them is to argue that, you know, the seller is not our client. We have no legal duty to the seller. Um, I, I, and they'll, <laughs> I have them try to make out these claims like the buyers of these unsophisticated people who've never been through the process. And usually, as it turns out, I had one recently where 
the guy's telling me, you know, the inspector scared the buyer and, and made her, you know, get rid of the, the deal, even though that it, you know, it wasn't really that bad. Well, it turned out that buyer was a sophisticated real estate buyer who also was a real estate agent and <laughs> it's in the business of flipping houses. And I call her on the phone and I say, you know, I got to ask you, I got this guy and it's in Tennessee where, by the way, you know, Ben mentioned people moving to Tennessee. Every litigious person in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania must have re relocated there. <laughs> My second California. State and California. <clears throat> so New Jersey is, <clears throat> as we rank our states, um, when I was in, 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 as a lawyer doing insurance defense work, the insurance companies used to call certain places judicial hell holes. And what that meant was we weren't going to get a fair shake there. Um, uh, near you folks, Louisiana was always considered a place where a plaintiff could get a lot of money in a lawsuit. But New Jersey's right up there. But somehow, it, you know, we write insurance in, in all the, the continental United States and New Jersey and Tennessee are my two worst claim states. And I can't figure out why Tennessee other than people relocating there. But um, the question about how, you know, how often do sellers sue, it's, it's very rare. Mostly they'll either file a claim with the state agency or they'll, you know, they'll make a demand that the inspector, you know, pay them the difference um, between a sale or their carrying charges because they had to go a couple extra weeks. Um, but I, I've never had anybody win one um, that, that, that tried to argue that the inspector did more than they were permitted to do. Um, it, it just usually turns out to be completely frivolous. Unfortunately, um, you know, if they do file a lawsuit, we have to hire an attorney and, and respond on your behalf. Um, even if it's frivolous, we still have to do that. But um, it really doesn't come up that often. Now, <clears throat> one way to avoid a seller making a, 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 a false claim that you broke something um, is, is to photograph. You know, and again, that goes back to taking pictures of how the house looks, you know, right now. Um, because I've had situations where sellers have said, hey, the inspector didn't lock the door on the way out. And now, you know, it's always like a priceless family heirloom that's missing. Um, or when something breaks, it's always like this, you know, a thing that can never be replaced in the world and, and the, no amount of money would, would satisfy us. But if you give us 10 grand, we'd be satisfied, you know? And, and so my, my, what I tell inspectors is, you know, part of your defense of yourself is to take really good photographs of how the room looks and all the things in it. Um, I also recommend inspectors when you're leaving, if you're going to a home that, that, you know, you're getting let in by a lockbox. Um, and the seller's not home, uh, and their, their things are there, that you photograph the, the door getting locked on your way out. Because I have had a number of claims where people have tried to say we, you know, had things stolen um, because you left the door open. And I, it was always some crazy, you know, well, it's jewelry that I didn't have a list of somewhere, but it just turns out to be worth 10 grand. Like 10 grand seems to be the running number that people want to get out of an inspector when they're a seller. But yeah, I, you, unfortunately, in the world we live in, we have to do all these things. Um, the other thing I'm going to tell you is um, you always have to assume that you're being videotaped when you walk in a house, um, whether it's a ring camera or, you know, the home security or the nanny cam or, you know, if you're like me and you spoil your pets rotten, I have, you know, we, a pet cam. Uh, you got to assume you're on camera. Spoiling yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> But that you have to assume that that you're going to be on camera as well. And so, <clears throat> you know, you need to take photographs um, and need to make sure you behave appropriately when you're in the house. And 
And also be aware that you may have a personal phone conversation that might be getting picked up and recorded somewhere in there if the house is vacant. Yeah, the other thing we're talking about that, Joe, and Ben, is that uh, you may not want to discuss that report details in, in the house because of just that. Yeah, a lot of times yeah. I'll, I'll ask them if they'd like to step outside of my office and I'll open my tailgate of my truck and discuss the report with them. Yeah. Yeah, you really have to, you just have to assume that's the case. And, and uh, you know, if, if you've seen the thousands and thousands of like FedEx videos where the driver's flipping something out of the, out of the truck at like 50 miles an hour onto somebody's porch and you say, you know, wouldn't people think like there's cameras everywhere now? Why? But they don't, they forget. They don't think about so, it. Got no, another question. Uh, so if the buyer's not present, should we collect payment directly from the agent? that pays us for, for from their own account should payments come from our clients only? Um, and far as, in terms of risk and, and, you know, claim and whether that, you know, avoids the contract or anything, it doesn't. It, people can confer a benefit on, you know, on behalf of somebody else. And, and whether or not the, the agent writes the check, and, and when it happens sometimes when the agent gets reimbursed at the closing, um, that's not really as important as who signs the agreement. And, and, you know, we have occasions, I'll tell you, you know, my oldest daughter and her husband were buying a house and, you know, part of what I was helping with was the inspections. Um, and so I was, you know, paying for those and it doesn't affect the fact that they signed the pre-inspection agreement for that inspector. Um, ultimately, as long as the client signs the agreement, it's not really important where the money comes from. Although, um, I have to pull up the ethics guidelines for Texas. It, there may be a provision there about accepting payment from two people or, or I, it would be more problematic if it's the seller writing the check, obviously. Um, but I don't have a problem with the agent writing the check as long as the client signs the agreement. Speaking of the agreement, when do you recommend that agreement be signed? Well before you start that work. And I'm going to tell you <clears throat> the best practice you know, we live in a world now, if, if you're using something like ISN or a lot of the report hosting companies um, have like a, a system in place where that, that agreement's automatically sent out. And so there, there's two critical elements here. The first is, when do you get the, the agreement to that, that client? And I'm going to tell you, as soon as your appointment's made, you need to get that agreement out to the client. We have email, you have people faxes, whatever the case may be, you need to get that out immediately. And, and why I say that is because you want to give them as much time as you can to, to have to read that contract and appreciate the agreement they're making, particularly when you use um, limitation of liability or liquidated damages clauses in your agreement, right? And, uh, you know, they, they still work in Texas. There, there's good case law on those. And, um, and we've had a lot of success enforcing them. And so if you have a provision like that, that, that really caps somebody's ability um, to bring a claim against you, it's imperative that they get that agreement in enough time to read it and appreciate it or you know, go over it with an attorney or whatever they want to do before they sign it. And then the second step is the timing of that signature. And I'm going to tell you, your best practice is to not do any part of that inspection until that agreement's signed. You know, we don't live in a world today where everything has to be wet ink. You know, they can DocuSign, you can use all, a, a number of different ways 
to get that signature from somebody who maybe isn't there. Um, but it's important that you get it signed before you start any of the work. And I always, when we do these live, I, I hear a lot of groans in the audience when I say that. And I understand it is that in, more often than not, the inspector is the only person on time for the inspection. And you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs and you might have other appointments that day and other clients you take care of. Um, and, and so you may want to go do the roof while you're waiting for everybody to get there. Um, it's fine if you already have the signed agreement, but if you're, if you're going to have the client give you the signed agreement at the site, you should not start any work until that agreement is signed. <clears throat> yeah, I, I've always used that same principle in my business. I had a uh, commercial job I did, and it was an attorney representing the client on this property. And he gets there and he brings me my agreement because I had sent it to him earlier, but I hadn't yet received it. So there he walks in the door, I meet him and ask him, does he have my agreement? He said, yeah. He said, I got it, but I'm going to strike through a bunch of this stuff because I don't want to agree to it. <laughs> I said, well, if you strike through any of the stuff on it, you and I aren't going to be doing an inspection together. He said, but you're already scheduled. I said, I don't care. Without a signed agreement, I don't do the work. And he actually told me after, he said, well, there's some parts in your agreement. He said, I sue home inspectors. He <laughs> said, there's some parts in your agreement that I really like, and I'm going to use for my uh, purposes in my office, because there's no way I could sue you after this. I said, well, good. I'm glad you like it. And it's nice meeting you. See you later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, no, listen, I'm going to tell you again. I hate to be the person to say turn down a fee. I, I really am. Um, I grew up in a small business. Like I know that every dollar counts. But there's some, <clears throat> there's some things you got to draw the lines in the sand on. And, and your agreement is probably the first part. Of that. that and your safety issues, right? It, those are two things that should not be compromised. And, <clears throat> you know, we don't care. You can run your business and you can say, I don't want to use limitation of liability clauses because... You know, I, I don't think I want to do my business that way. And you're entitled to do that. doesn't affect whether or not I cover you with insurance. As long as you have a signed agreement, that satisfies my requirement. Um, but I'm going to tell you that the reason a state like Texas finds those to be fair is because when you walk in that house, there's no way for you to properly gauge what it is you're going to encounter and what risks you're going to, you're going to face. And the other thing is, is that if, if home inspectors charged clients based on the amount of risk, whether it be civil liability, license liability, or, or personal injury, the amount of risk that you take when you go in to do that job is tremendous. And the only way you can do it for the fees that you charge, and I'm going to tell you, and I tell this to everybody, that home inspectors are, you know, as a whole, underpaid, grossly underpaid for what you do and the importance you have to the transaction and to, to giving people peace of mind. But in exchange for being able to do it cheaply so that everybody from Bobby and Susie, first time home buyer on a fixed income to you know, people with, with plenty of money to spend, uh, the only way you can do that at a, at a rate that everybody can afford is, is if you're allowed to limit your exposure to risk. Yeah. And, and it's a public policy provision. Again, if, if inspections were $3,000 a pop, then Bobby and Susie aren't getting that inspection. And then they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna clog up the courts with, with failure to disclose claims against the sellers. And, and so the only way to try to avoid all that from a public policy standpoint is to allow inspectors to curb their risk. Now, 
Should you be able to curb your risk in situations of gross negligence or willful misconduct? No, probably not. And we're, you know, but, but if, if we're talking about the simple, hey, I missed something in the panel box that needs to be fixed, your liability should be limited in that regard. Um, and that allows us to serve the public and provide the public with this valuable service at a price they can afford. Yeah, you guys certainly have a challenge to represent inspectors from all the different states, some being licensed, some being trained, some not being trained, and the ex experience and education level of these inspectors. I mean, goodness, I can only imagine the vast variety of, of inspectors that you guys represent. So it, it's quite interesting, quite a challenge, but thank you guys. We do have another question. It said, uh, why use a capital letters for client and inspector in the agreement? Is this necessary? So I think that's referring to the new NACHI agreements because we, we define the client as, you know, the home inspection client and inspector is the, you know, inspection company. And so in the body of the report or in the body of the agreement, rather, we use, you know, just that term rather than repeat the company's name over and over. Um, from a just purely enforceability standpoint, it doesn't matter. If you want to change client to, you know, the actual name of the person, or you want to change inspector to the name of your company or your name, there, there's no magic to that. Um, the reason we, we capitalize them is so people, their attention is called to, you know, who, who has this responsibility or who, who doesn't have this responsibility. And so, for example, in the section of the, the contract where we talk about all the things you're not going to do, um, it says inspector is not required to, inspector is not required to. And I put that in caps because I want people to understand the importance of that. And I want their attention to be drawn to it. And when you throw something in there with capital letters or with bold typeface or underlining or italics, when the reader's reading, it notices that difference. And then the reader focuses on that difference. And I want them to focus on certain things in that agreement, particularly the things you're not going to do in the limit of liability agreement. So that's why we use capitals. But I'm not going to tell you how to run your business. If you decide you'd like to do it differently, um, by all means, do it. And it, it won't mean a thing in terms of insurance coverage if you're insured with us. Good. Well, did we lose Ben? Ben, are you still around there? I see I'm a vacant chair. There he is. I suspect, his, I suspect his beautiful young kid might be crawling around under there and he's trying to catch her before she gets in this company. No, no, there, you, you would hear her, make no mistake. She's not present for this one. My, no. <laughs> I'm just amazed we've kept my dogs out of this whole thing. Usually that's the big, although I say that and I can hear one of them scratching against the door. I'm hidden. <laughs> I'm, I'm camped out in a spare bedroom in the back, but they usually tend to find me because I'm the guy with the treats. Well, Ben, contribute something to us, man. I'm sorry? Contribute something to us. You've been awfully quiet. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I've, I've let, look, people are here to see the lawyer, right? They, they want to hear the legal. Oh, we, we've seen him enough, man. We, we've answered, <laughs> he's answered all our questions. A lot of hot air. <laughs> no, I, um, um, there's a lot of good information here. And I think having Joe and his legal expertise to be able to answer questions about anything related to risk and, and the law and how claims actually happen uh, what the process is like. Um, and just going back to reiterate the fact and trying to spell the myth that insurance companies, we're, we're, we're the insurance company, we're here to help, right? Where I've got a stack of letters on my desk of, um, that were written by other services, claim prevention services, 
uh, that went sideways, right? Because what happens is, is you report a claim uh, to whatever claim service you might have at your disposal and that person responds and it goes dormant for nine months and you think it's gone, it's dead in the water. And then the next thing you know, you get served with a summons because you thought it was otherwise handled and it wasn't. Um, and you didn't report it to your carrier because you didn't think there was a need to because you had someone else handle it for you. And that creates a lot of problems. Right. And then because we have a coverage problem, because it usually would not have been reported in the period, the coverage period in which you were, uh, which it happened. So uh, I, I can't impress upon you enough that we're, we're here to help you. And we want to know about these things so that we can get a jump on them. And by reporting them to Joe and his and his staff of attorneys and claims adjusters, you've met not only the requirement of reporting it to your insurance provider, but you've given our claims team a handle a chance to handle these things be before they become costly litigation, and um, and that really was the, um, the 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 cornerstone of of what we offer and what differentiates us, um, and and changed the insurance industry and the risk management profession, which we're in the business of doing, um, and and having the expertise and combining that with 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 Internachi and all their education. Um, has really gone a long way, I feel like, to help manage the risk uh, for home inspectors nationwide and, and Texas in particular. Yeah, I, I think the big, the, the most glaring difference between us and, and, and other companies is, is that, you know, we, we actually own the risk. Um, if you're buying your insurance from an agent or a broker, um, they really don't have any control over what happens with your claim. They really don't have any control over you know, what the carrier does in terms of raising your premium because of a claim. They don't have control over that at all because they don't own the risk. They're, they're, they have a different company, you know, an insurance company is, is actually doing all that. We do it entirely differently. Um, we decided that, you know, we were able to bear the risk that we don't need an insurance carrier um, to bear most of the risk because we know this business in terms of, of risk management for home inspectors and protecting home inspectors. And um, the uniqueness of it is that because we've actually litigated these cases, I mean, I don't know any other company that has people on staff that actually, you know, were the trial lawyers on home inspection cases. But I can tell you, I, I look at it a little bit differently because I've seen how this plays out you know, when a judge has to think about it or an arbitrator has to think about it or a juror has to think about how they want to deal with these facts and the, and the potential liability of the inspector. I've seen it hundreds of times. I can tell you what every plaintiff's going to testify to at these trials. And more importantly, I know what it should cost. And, you know, because I was a defense lawyer for all those years, I was budgeting these claims when, when the carrier would send it to me. Um, and I, you know, I did work for... <laughs> The other companies that write your, you know, that sell you insurance, I was the attorney on a lot of their programs. And, and so I can tell you that, um, you know, I know where, where the, the money gets spent. And unfortunately, a lot of times it's in the defense lawyer. And how that relates to the inspector is, you know, we have a claim that gets settled for 10 grand, but they spent 60 on the lawyer defending the suit. And you have to ask yourself, well, wh why did we need to spend that 60 on a $10,000 case? And, and what we bring to the table that's unique is because I've been the defense lawyer, I can look at these budgets that the lawyers send in and say, you know what, this is wrong. <laughs> and you can do this a lot more, more efficiently and a lot cheap, you know, cheaper. And, and here's how you might accommodate that, or here's how you might accomplish that. Because I've been the person who had to do these things in a cost-effective way. And so, 
you know, that's something that we do that nobody else is, is equipped to do. Um, and, and we, we, we use that to our advantage in terms of how we look at the inspectors from an underwriting standpoint and, and what should they be charged for their premium. And, it, you know, I think most people would say who've dealt with us that, you know, if we want that, if we want that insured, we can beat any policy we want because it's our money and because we own the company. And if I have to make a decision about coverage, it's me. You know, you're talking to the guy who makes the decision. There's not some nameless, faceless person in New York or Chicago or LA or, or wherever making those decisions. It's, it's me. Um, the buck stops with me in terms of anything related to claims for this company and nobody else can say that. And so I, you know, I think it's important to think about those kinds of things is, is, is your carrier focused on, on you and your business. And, and that's a key factor. That's great. Yeah, that's absolutely a key factor. Well, Ben, what, tell us about the insurance policy through InterNACHI's insurance program uh, compared to other insurance companies that maybe Texas inspectors or Florida inspectors uh, have to shop with. What's the benefits um, of the InterNACHI? So the InterNACHI program, first and foremost, I mean, the vast majority of my competitors are almost all, all their policies are written on a not admitted or surplus lines uh, basis, which means the State Department of Insurance does not regulate them from a financial standpoint nearly as much as someone, uh, as a carrier like us. So everything we do, every, every policy that we write in every state has to be approved and vetted by the State Department of Insurance in each respective state. That's why it takes so long to do what we've done. It took a couple of years and a lot of financial resources to do what we do because it's so costly, so bureaucratic uh, to deal with every insurance department. But the value is, is that the insurance commissioner's uh, office has approved everything that we've done. So from a consumer standpoint, you have more protection um, um, from, a, from a state level, from a, from a government level. And the, the insurance commissioner's job in part is to ensure fair play for consumers in that case, in, in this case, being you as, a, as an insured. Um, so what we really try to do is from the policy standpoint is add value proposition, right? Oftentimes people look at insurance from a consumer standpoint as almost a commodity. So how do we, how do we, how do we decommoditize this? And that's kind of my job, right? And it's the value proposition of what we offer between Joe's claims assist that's integrated with the policy. So any non-suit matters that you have a letter from an attorney, disgruntled client that gets handled by Joe's staff, they'll respond for you. We've, we've addressed that. Um, we have a vanishing E&O deductible. So every year your claim for your deductible is going to go down by $500 to a floor of 500. Ultimately, you get customized agreements that, as Joe mentioned, he and Nick just revamped, um, not only for the standard home inspection, but all the ancillary services, the five-year tail policy, endorsements for all the services that you might offer, whether it's termite, uh, radon, if you're licensed for termite by the TDA, radon, mold, um, anything you want to, uh, uh, any service you want to offer, sewer scopes, which is becoming a, 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 really, a really big service. Um, so from a coverage standpoint, we've got it all um, from a price point standpoint. And Joe, Joe alluded to this. I mean, it's, 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 the, it's our money, right? It's, it, it, we can control the pricing and we have that. We're not at the mercy of, uh, uh, of a carrier dictating what, uh, what our premiums can be. And we, we have the ability to price things appropriately to, to um, write a piece of business that we, that we, that we want. Um, and uh, when, when it comes to writing inspectors that have had past losses, 
again, um, to reiterate, we take a qualitative approach. When we see a lost run report that shows an, a hell of a lot of money spent on legal defense costs and a, a minor amount spent in settlement, then the radar goes up. That gives us you know, a sign to, to look more into this, to see what happened, because we've seen so many examples of inspectors getting railroaded. We've seen so many examples of other insurance providers mishandling a claim. And instead of looking at the just a loss run report from a strict number standpoint of a $100,000 loss, we dig into the data, right? Where does that money come from? How did they arrive at that number? What happened? Was the claim defended improperly? Should they have gotten out of it earlier? So we take a look at these things that no one else really does. And we're able to because we have the experience and, and the resources to do it. So, I mean, that and, and, and also from, from, from an application standpoint, it's pretty simple, right? We have an application on the uh, InterNACHI website. It's insurance.nachi.org. Um, and you can uh, apply right there. We'll, we'll kick you out a quote within 24 hours. Um, and if you have any questions, um, I'm happy I, uh, to, to walk you through it. Um, someone I think had just posted a question about my phone number. My direct line um, is 302-690-9839. And I'll say that one more time. It's 302-690-9839. Um, and then I'll, I'll post my email address as well here in, in, the, in the chat, unless Paul or Brenda are, are able to do it. Um, but uh, email, um, call, uh, whatever works best for you. Um, I, we're, we're here to help and answer any questions related to insurance risk. If this begs any questions you didn't feel comfortable asking, didn't want to ask, um, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, I'm listening. I was trying to look up your email so I could put it on there. But if you've let got me, it, I'll let you go. Just put it in the chat. My rant's to... over. My rant is over. Let me, I'll post it. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, someone said, thank you very much for your help. We appreciate it. And uh, in closing, I want to just say that I appreciate you guys being on today. And, you know, if, if uh, I want to remind you the convention that you guys enjoyed so much this February, we're having it again, or in January, we're having it again, January the 19th through the 21st, 23. Goodness, it sounds strange to say 2023, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Uh, same place, same location. Just uh, put those dates on your calendar so you can remember us. And we'd love to have you guys come back and, and talk again for us. Oh, yeah. We're going to. So we already been <laughs> we've already been brainstorming that one for 2023, actually, and how we want to do it. And I think we're going to do some case studies where we can pull actual claims and go through them with the audience and, and talk about what happened, what was good, what was not good, the results, um, some kind of real world perspective on some of these sure. things. We'll be happy to be there. We really appreciate it being invited today and, and, and when we came uh, earlier in the month. And, and we just love working with everybody there. And, you know, we're here to help in terms of your insurance. If you need us, we're right here. All right. Well, we appreciate you guys being here. And I see Ben's posted his email address and phone number for everybody. So give you a minute to write those down. So any, any conclusion words that you guys want to do before we close this webinar down? Yeah, I, I think... I'm going to say, you know, I think in large part um, with regard to liability and risk and everything, I, I do think that we see somewhat of a better class of inspector in Texas. Um, and I don't know if that's related to the regulation, the training, but um, probably because a lot of our insureds are in your group and they have the opportunity to do things like this. And 
what I'm going to say is, you know, if you're an InterNACHI member and a member of this group or both and, and take advantage of that because there's a lot of inspectors in places where there's nobody around to have these meetings, you right. know, and, or there's nobody, there's nobody they can call and say, Hey, what would you do in this situation? And you, you really have a unique, um, a unique asset in, in terms of InterNACHI, in terms of Priya and, 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 you know, in these kinds of things and, and, this is how you, you know, this is how you prevent claims is you do things like this and you, you keep an open mind and you keep talking about them. And so I, you know, this is a wonderful tool for, for your members. Um, you having these things, not whether it's Ben and I or somebody else, the idea that these things are available to people is huge. And, and so take full advantage of those things but trust me, they will, they do benefit you. We have data that proves it, <laughs> that Good. your involvement in these kinds of things will help you prevent claims. Uh, appreciate that, Ben. Joe, appreciate oh, I, you guys I, being. I just want to say thank you. I've, since I, I've done hundreds of conferences since 2006 when I got in this business, and uh, I've been around the country, been to all over the place, and you guys do a wonderful job of hosting a conference um, from from a vendor standpoint and an engagement standpoint. It really means a lot to us, people that have that have been to so many of these, and and thank you for doing uh, for doing what you do and doing such a great job of it. We really appreciate it. Well, thank yeah. you. Very kind of you. We appreciate the words. It kind of gives us a little bit of encouragement. We might be able to do it one more year. Now we, <laughs> we plan to keep it going. So we will be there. Yeah, All right. We're invited. We're there. All right. Well, listen, we will go ahead and close it now. But again, thanks both of you and thanks to all of you that are in attendance. Uh, listen to us today or saw us. We appreciate it and hope you guys have a great rest of the January and look forward to the rest of the year. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Take care.